I just have to say boots. Yeah. Okay, boots. And cats. Boots. And cats. Boots. And cats. <laughs> you need to take that one back to the feet lab. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about Gary Tyson. And uh, where did you do your research on this one, Katie? This one was The Last Rampage by James W. Clark. Any relation to Mike Tyson? No. James Clark is a Tucson native, though. Nice. Nice. So it's Tyson, like the chicken, but spelled different? T-I-S-O-N. Okay. Except for his brother who changed the spelling to T-Y-S-O-N. Because he wanted to be involved with the chicken people. Makes sense. And uh, where are we going for this one? Um, Pretty much everywhere in the Four Corners. We start out in outside, and then it's going to be Casa Grande, Colorado, New Mexico, pretty much everywhere. Casa Grande. All right, Katie, well, why don't you go ahead and start us out? <laughs> Gary Jean Tyson was born October 25th, 1935, in the heart of the Great Depression. That's my birthday. That's my best friend's birthday. I bet you didn't know that about me, Katie, but October 25th, kind of a big deal. You think I didn't know your birthday? When Gary was only two years old, his father, Reuben Curtis Tyson, went to prison for a string of armed robberies, leaving his mother Mary alone and pregnant with their second child. Joe Tyson, Gary's brother, was born in 1938, not long before Reuben was released from prison in 1939. Not long after his release, Mary learned she was pregnant again, this time with a girl who they named Martha. The Great Depression was just ending as Reuben was released, but work was difficult to find in Oklahoma, especially as a convicted felon. They chose to move briefly to Phoenix, Arizona, then on to Kern County, California, where Reuben, Gary, and Joe all worked in fields, picking whatever crop was growing. So, my dad actually lived in uh, Tehachapi, California, which is in Kern County, and uh, you said they were from Arvin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they kind of lived around Arvin. I know exactly where that is. Being extremely poor, Gary tended to get picked on by his classmates over his clothing. He would quickly end the bullying by fighting with anyone that said something he didn't like, asserting his dominance early in life, likely a trait instilled on him by his ex-con father. As Gary approached adolescence, he and his father began arguing frequently, and at 12 years old, he ran away to his aunt's house. His mother convinced him to come back after a few months, but his problems only continued to get worse. Gary dropped out of school in the 10th grade, noting he was smarter and tougher than anyone there, so tough that he got kicked off the football team for unnecessary roughness. After leaving high school, his criminal career began. His first arrest came after he broke into a store, to which he was given six months probation. In 1954, at 19 years old, Gary, his brother Joe, and a friend stole a car from a car lot in Arvin, California, and planned to drive it to Arizona. They first stopped at a gas station outside of Bakersfield, California, and robbed them of $39, a pistol, and a tank of gas. That was the good old days when 39 bucks was the whole register, gas was basically as good as free, and Texaco sold pistols in the candy aisle. The good old days. Once they reached Casa Grande, Arizona, they stole license plates off of a car and robbed a grocery store of $234. That's a big score from the Abco. They were spotted by police and led them on a high-speed chase through Pinal County before crashing near Winkleman. Pinal County is really big, and Winkleman is actually, it hangs into Pinal County. So this could have been, <laughs> this could have been like a really long car chase, or it could have been a really short one. Do we know? I don't know how well, long it was. It was pretty long ago, so I'm guessing Phoenix Fump. didn't like spread that far. Oh, they weren't even near Phoenix, really. Isn't Winkleman right in, right near Phoenix, just north of it? I suppose, but there's a county. Oh, yeah, Maricopa butts up to Pinal. Yeah, I think Winkleman kind of straddles the two. I see. Pinal is kind of weird. It's like 
I think, doesn't it sit right is next it, to Tucson and go north? Pretty it, much almost all the way to Phoenix. And it wraps. Yeah. It's pinal shaped. Carrie and his friend were sentenced to 7 to 15 years in Arizona State Prison in Florence, and Joe Tyson, a minor at the time, was given probation. They called him Lucky Joe Roses after that. Yeah, why did they call him that? Because he always came up smelling like roses. He was a lucky dude. They might not have called him that. For being 16 when he committed a crime? <laughs> yeah. You were just lucky you were a child. <laughs> yeah. You won't be so lucky in two years, Joe pretty, Roses. Pretty soon he'll find out that roses really smell like doo doo. <laughs> yeah, in like 30 or 40 years. Mary Tyson couldn't stand being so far away from her son back in Kern County, so she moved the family to Casa Grande, not far from Florence in Arizona State Prison. Reuben couldn't find work anywhere in Casa Grande, so Mary began writing the parole board, begging for Gary's release so they could return to California. Somehow, it worked, and Gary was released September 18, 1956, after serving 25 months of his 7-15 to 15 year sentence. I mean, the good old days when a strongly worded letter can get your son out of prison 5 to 13 years early. Mm-hmm. Wow. Everything's the good old days when it's the 60s. Like, it was this just the 50s. Different. 50s? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 56. I thought it said 65. I'm a little bit dyslexic tonight. Everything's the good old days in the 50s. During his short stint in prison, Gary's sister brought a woman named Dorothy to visitation one day. Gary immediately fell for her, and her for him, and the two married on October 25th, 1957. Hey, <laughs> that's our birthdays. <laughs> Yours and Gary's? Mine and Gary's. Oh my god. That's gotta be a really hard, hard sell, like, to date some, like, to get someone to date you when you're in prison, because <laughs> first he had to get her to even accept, like, the collect call, right? And then he had to get her to come all the way out there to see him just for a shitty, like, 30-minute visitation. It seems like it's pretty, like, I don't know how someone would actually fall in love with an inmate at that point. Well, you got to remember, this is the 1950s. Back then, it was all switchboard operators. Hello, ma'am, can you get me in? And shit like that. So they, um, it wasn't really, (laughs) they didn't really have uh, collect calls. Really? Yeah, it was all switchboard operators. They didn't say... Oh, this is a collect call from the prison to Gary Tyson. Would you like to accept? No. Oh, it wasn't collect. It was all, like, uh, free. His sister just brought her to visitation. He didn't call her. He didn't know her before yeah, she was brought she to the prison up. to meet so him. She, so his sister tricked her. She's Did like, yeah, murder? we're going to go out to a drive-in theater. And then just... They would drive out and watch the um, prison performance of Cats. That <laughs> <laughs> was not good. No. Rum Tum Tugger, absolutely dismal performance. That's the original Rum Tum Tugger, but he got that nickname for a different reason. <laughs> At the time of their marriage, Dorothy was already seven months pregnant with their first child. On January 1st, 1958, Donald Tyson was born. Ricky Tyson was born in December of 1958, and Ray, their third and final son, was born 11 months later. They really got on it with the breeding right there. <laughs> I mean, those kids, a kid born every fucking 11 months, that's pretty crazy. That's the American dream for every woman is to only spend two months out of every year without a child in her. I know, right? I mean, those two months, she's like, what, kicked up with her feet up, feet up you know? Yeah. Wine in hand. Well, this was the 50s. They drank all the way through their pregnancy. Yeah. They ate bonbons all day. Valiums. Yeah. Like raising kids hard work. <laughs> Gary worked for a brief period of time, quitting jobs quickly after he started because he didn't like being told what to do. Eventually, he wasn't able to find any more work, as every potential employer in Casa Grande knew not to hire him. So he ruined his reputation in, like, the entire little city there? Basically. 
Wow. I mean, it's a pretty small town, but I know that there's been there's a lot of old-timey shops there, so they're probably around back then. Why is it Casa Grande and not Casa Grande? He resorted to robbery again, getting away with $200 from a grocery store on March 24th, 1961. You know, technically, he's robbed so much from grocery stores, he's employed by APCO? It's only two. Oh, so. And I don't know if it was APCO. I feel like we should have got some information before this about if ABCO existed back then. Well, I think it was probably Bash's. No, it was definitely ABCO. Okay. ABCO's been good to old Gare Bear. Bash's bought ABCO in the late 90s, or early 2000s or something like that, I think. Hmm. He went on a two-week-long robbery spree until he was finally caught stealing weapons from a National Guard armory. That's pretty ballsy. Where do you find a National Guard armory? Near the National Guard. You just walk up to it and start stealing shit? I mean, it's the National Guard. <laughs> They're only paying attention two weekends a year. Yeah. While awaiting trial in Banal County Jail, he escaped on September 1st, stealing a car and robbing another grocery store before being caught and returned to jail. Before being sentenced to 25 to 30 years on January 2nd, 1962, he was diagnosed as a sociopath by a jail psychiatrist. Now, do we actually trust 1962 psychological uh, diagnoses, or is this just something that they can pin on people to explain away their actions instead of having to face the fact that most people are fairly terrible? Or not most people, but some people are fairly terrible. We've had a pretty good idea about sociopathy for quite a while, so I would say he's pretty legitimate. And if they also only have a couple of diagnoses back then, though, like compared to these days where we have a much better idea of all the different uh, uh, mental disorders than back then, they were just like, oh, well, you fall in a couple of boats and... It depends, because... All of the newer diagnoses that we have branch off of the ones that they used to know about. So there's some people that would say that we just overdiagnose people now. We have a name for literally anything and everything, and none of it's really legitimate. Do you think a couple of robberies and a stealing a car or two would be enough to actually label someone as a sociopath at that point? Well, that's kind of why I'm asking, because he, he just sort of like comes in there and says this guy's a sociopath and that kind of buttonholes him into a category it seems to be a fairly broad category at this point is what you're saying so it can like encompass a lot of things he definitely had a conduct disorder because he kept getting in trouble no matter what he can't hold the job wasn't a very good kid so i mean basically the train of thought behind sociopathy is that you have a conduct disorder as a child and then as an adult you have aspd so having a conduct disorder and being in trouble with the law so often, so young, basically, yes, he's more than likely a psychopath. Okay. Taking after Mary Tyson, Dorothy began writing the parole board begging for Gary's release. It worked again, and he was paroled on July 1st, 1966, after serving five years of his 25 to 30 year sentence. The good old days strike again. Now, these are the times that these people, these old people are talking about when they say, oh, the good old days. Back when you could get away with everything and we had our own water fountains. Uh, was there like an overcrowding issue in the prison that made it like really easy to get a release granted or the families have naked pictures of the warden or something? Like how are they always just like getting them out just with a letter? Being a psychopath, he was extremely well behaved in prison because he knew it would get him what he wanted. So basically he would commit a bunch of crime and then go to prison and say like, oh, I repented. I'm never going to do it again. He would be very remorseful. And then parole board looking at that, you've never been in trouble. You've never been written up in prison. And now someone needs you for their three children, their three really young children, to support them. They're going to be a little lenient on you. Seven months after his release, the family was dead broke and Gary was jobless. 
He was arrested for check fraud, but the owner of the gas station he ripped off took pity on the Tyson family and dropped the charges. Not realizing how lucky he was to have avoided prison, Harry immediately got involved in a scheme to pay off Border Patrol agents and smuggle tractors across the Mexican border. Smuggling tractors is how it all starts, if I am understanding the plot of Nogos correctly. It's the spare tires in the tractors. Ah. And the tractor tires in general. I am not understanding the plot of Narcos. <laughs> Close. When the plan fell through, he kept the bribe money, pissing off one of his co-conspirators who turned him into police. He was arrested April 28, 1967, and his parole revoked. Clearly he's having way too much fun in prison, and whatever it is, he seems to be all about it, because he just keeps going back. Impulse control. Or he likes prison. Or he maybe should just, like, not be in Casa Grande when he commits a crime. Like, just leave Pinal County, and maybe you won't get caught, because everyone recognizes you. His barber is in that prison, so he has to go back every, every two weeks. He has to get back in there for a, for a cut. When they hand out the clippers? Yeah. After his trial, Dorothy rushed up to him while a guard, James Steiner, was taking him out of the building, trying to give him a kiss goodbye. Steiner told her no, and quote-unquote shoved her out of the way, making Gary angry. On the five-minute drive back to Arizona State Prison, Gary either had a pistol or overpowered Steiner and took his pistol, forcing him to drive down a secluded dirt road and get out. While James Steiner sat and smoked a cigar, Gary shot him three times in the chest, killing him. Gary jumped back into the van and returned to Casa Grande, stopping at an abandoned house where Dorothy had let him, left him a change of clothes. He was reported to police after stealing a woman's car at gunpoint and got into a brief shootout with the responding officers. While hiding behind a short wall, an officer shot his cowboy hat off his head, scaring him enough to make him surrender. Speaking of shit right out of a bad western. I know, that's kind of awesome, though. Pew! It made the little ricochet noise. Literally Arizona for you. I think it is Grande, isn't it? Isn't it Casa Grande? No, it's Casa Grande. I don't think so. I just want to go on record by saying I don't think so. Who have you ever heard it pronounce it Casa Grande? I live Lots up in people. Casa Grande. It's Casa Grande. On March 25th, 1968, he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. Even though he was a convicted murderer, he was transferred out of maximum security in the summer of 1970. So with the change of clothes that Dorothy left for him and everything, doesn't it seem like it was kind of planned either way and he was going to probably kill the CO even if he hadn't like pushed her away and not let him give her a kiss goodbye? I think he probably would have left him. Just out in the middle of nowhere, basically, if he hadn't have made him angry. But he basically wronged him enough to need to die for it. I mean, he wronged Dorothy. If anything, make Dorothy kill him. Two years later, he tried to escape prison once again. He and two other inmates forced guards into a storage room and made them strip. Once they were changed into their CO uniforms, they attempted to climb a wall out of the prison. Classic cheesy movie plot. Guards found them later that evening, hiding in the prison laundry. So once they were in the CO uniforms, wouldn't it make more sense to just like walk out during the shift change rather than try to parkour your way over the wall? Well, you're going to walk past people that see their other co-workers every day and also see the inmates in the prison every day. They're just going to do a do stroll on past me like, hey. So why'd they put on the CO's clothes then? So it didn't look suspicious when they tried to climb the 10-foot wall, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, Everyone they thought that one out. CEOs play Spider-Man on their lunches, <laughs> so they were just waiting for that time to go pretend they were Spider-Man. CEOs like to go hang upside down from the rafters. Prison officials attempted to say they didn't know how Gary and the other inmates had weapons, but it was well known between inmates and CEOs that Gary carried a twenty-two caliber Derringer in his boot. 
How does someone get away with carrying a gun? I see boot is prison slang for butthole. So it's... <laughs> no one is going to reach up in there. He said that he couldn't wear the prison-issued shoes because he had ankle problems, so his cowboy boots were prescription. Prescription cowboy boots. I... Okay. I, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Uh, that's cool. <laughs> Yay, Gary. (laughs) Some people said, there were some inmates that thought and pretty much believed that the guards or the warden, someone, one prison official actually gave Gary the gun to protect himself because they liked him so much. He was the favorite of everyone at the prison, from inmates to guards to even the warden. He was able to manipulate everyone he crossed paths with and convince anyone important he was a changed man. He was given the job of inmate activity coordinator, which came with his own desk and phone he could use to call anyone. He ran drugs inside the prison and out, and was accused of ordering a hit on another inmate that was successfully carried out. So this guy's just big prison ballin'. Um, Do we know what he did to convince all these people? He wrote a lot of letters. I guess it was big back then for the news to come interview inmates about how conditions were inside the prison. So he would always, they would always say, oh, you should interview Gary because he's, you know, reformed. He's trusty. Yeah, he's reformed by this place. And then he would... Basically talk a bunch of good about how great the prison was and how great the warden was. So he just kissed ass. And gave them their drugs. I think Jake hit the nail on the head there. In September of 1977, a federal judge ordered that prisons were too overcrowded and wardens needed to find a way to reduce their numbers. The warden of Arizona State Prison did so by converting the women's prison across the street into an extremely low security facility for the most well-behaved inmates, which he called the trustee annex. So my, my question to you is, what happened to all the women? They weren't. I don't think they were housing women at the prison at the time. Oh, so it was just a big... I think it was just empty, yeah. They sent them home. Okay. Yeah. Also, the book spelled it T-R-U-S-T-Y, but I think it was supposed to be with an E-E. I think Trustee. it was supposed to be because they were all trustees. <laughs> and that's why it was so low security. Um, I see. Not only was Gary a trustee, he was also trustee. Their free time and visitation was spent outside in a large rec yard planted with grass and trees. Guards let inmates do basically whatever they wanted, including having sex with their wives and girlfriends when they came to visit. That's some nice guards just handing over their wives and girlfriends. Visitation would last all day, and families could bring in picnic baskets of food and other items to give to the inmate. And I think you had to be careful around there because you never know if that blanket laying on the ground is from a family who was just eating hoagies, having a nice picnic, doing their thing. Or if it was just from some dirty inmate who was getting freaky with his lady there. I think they were just doing it like right next to each other. No. No, they didn't all line up in the grass. They, I mean, <laughs> I, they obviously still hid. There was like children around. No, this is a, this is group living. One of the the prison bells rings. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's 11 o'clock outdoor hump time. Get going. <laughs> because Gary had been kissing up to the new warden since he started, he was approved to transfer to the trustee annex despite his murder charge. Another man, Randy Greenwald, was also transferred. So the trustee annex is just Pleasure Island from the classic Disney movie Pinocchio? Basically. I always wanted to go there when I was a kid. Is that where they go right before they get eaten by the whale? Yeah, right in the end where everybody gets to smoke and drink beer and, and play pool. smoking a cigar and he turns all green. Yeah, yeah. Randy was born in Hannibal, Missouri in 1949. His childhood and adult life was relatively uneventful. He attended one year of college and went into the Navy. After his administrative discharge in 1971, Randy and his brother began murdering truck drivers. Well, that really escalated quickly. He went from being a seaman to a murderer. He was only convicted of one murder, but was accused of three or four. 
They would find a tracker sleeping at a restaurant. Randy would climb up and draw an X on the window where his brother should fire to shoot the man in the head, and then they would rob them. Also diagnosed a sociopath, Randy loved to brag about his crimes and was extremely proud of the men he'd killed. He and Gary met and immediately became friends once moved into the trusty annex. And the warden wasn't really great at judging the character of the inmates, now was he? No. He tended to forget why they were in prison. Given his record, it was obvious Gary began planning another escape as soon as he was moved. He asked his brother, Joe, to get him a getaway car, weapons, and a plane to fly them to Mexico after their escape. Joe did get a plane, but instead used it to transport mass amounts of drugs across the border, crashing the plane on landing and destroying it. Joe was quickly arrested for transporting the drugs and stealing the plane he used to fly them. With federal charges against him, he gave up Gary's escape plan in hopes of making a deal. Did Gary know that Joe had crashed the plane and was being tuned up by the feds? I think word got to him, yeah. Joe turned real quick. Like, yeah, he federal charges. Over real fast. Gary was pulled into max security again under investigative hold while prison officials attempted to verify the story. They gave Gary two polygraphs, both which he easily passed, only showing a slight hint of emotion when they asked about his brother. Thinking it was because he snitched out his escape plan, the warden questioned him, but Gary was able to give a sob story about how he hated Joe because he sold drugs, and Gary had teenage sons and knew what drugs could do to ruin their lives. The warden approved his return to the trusty annex, thinking the escape plan was bullshit. Warden Trusterson done fucked up again. I feel like old G-Money just always introduced himself to the warden as Trusty Gary. He's like, I'm Trusty Gary. Trusty Gary belongs in the trusty annex. And then the warden was like, you're right. What are we even doing here, Trusty Gary? His name is Trusty. <laughs> it has trust in it. He belongs in that annex. Sir, it doesn't actually say that anywhere on his paperwork. I saw the air quotes when he said, my name is Gary Trusty. That was all I needed to Tyson. see. I think because he was a trustee, it probably did say it on his paperwork. Yeah, it's like trusty. Of course, it wasn't, and Gary was able to find another inmate who had his pilot's license. Robert Tuzon wanted no part in helping Gary escape, but had no choice as his wife and children were being threatened by Gary. If he thought Robert was going to back out, Gary would have photos of Robert's family taken and bring them to Robert so he knew the danger was real. He attempted to go to prison officials, but was blown off as Gary was so well-liked with the higher-ups. Failure on the part of the prison right there. In May of 1978, the escape was ready to go the next week. In a panic, Robert found a pair of wire cutters, cut a hole in the perimeter fence, and sat outside of it, waiting to be arrested. He was pulled back into maximum security, where he continued to tell prison officials what Gary was about to do, but the warden didn't believe him, and psychiatrists claimed the plot was too outrageous to be true. And what was the plot exactly? They were going to basically somehow break out, probably climb over the, the fence again, and then they were going to have a getaway car waiting, and then there was going to be a plane nearby, and Tuzon was going to fly them to Mexico, straight to Mexico from the prison, and they were never apparently going to be found in Mexico. On June 5th, a new director of corrections took over the prison. He received a letter from Robert reiterating the escape plan. This time, the director of corrections believed him, but his schedule was too full to meet with Robert until the 7th. When they did meet, he somewhat believed him, but decided he wanted to look into it further before bringing charges down on anyone. Gary continued to plan, without Robert, up until July 28th, when Robert sent word to Gary that he was going to testify at his trial that his escape was a desperate attempt to get out of Gary's plan. His next court appearance was for Monday the 31st, in only two days. It was Robert's way of telling Gary it was now or never. So he tried to snitch on him, and then he was uh, just down to do it anyway? 
No, he was not. That was basically you oh, have to do plan? it without me. Okay, and you or have I'm going to gonna do it testify. Now. And you yeah. got to do it now. Okay. On July 30th, 1978, Ray Tyson drove to Arizona State Prison to visit his father as he had every weekend for the last 15 years. Gary was somewhat shocked to see him, as the original plan didn't involve his children. They spoke for around 20 minutes before walking into the visitor lobby, where Randy Grinewalt was working as a clerk typist. Moments later, Donald and Ricky entered the lobby, carrying a large box. Ricky grabbed one of the sawed-off shotguns and pointed it in the guard's face, waiting for him to look up from what he was reading. They passed a pistol to Randy, who ordered the guards onto the ground. They quickly rounded up the visitors in the lobby and the rest of the guards and forced them into a storage closet, locking it behind them. In only a couple minutes, they had taken over the entire annex. The trusty annex. Randy and Gary changed into civilian clothes, grabbed the weapon box and ice chest, and all five of them walked out of the prison. The guards in the watchtower noticed them leaving, but thought nothing of a group of visitors leaving on a Sunday morning. See, this is a plan. It's a much better plan than putting on the CO's clothes and climbing over the 10-foot wall. This just seems to me that uh, prisons back then were really easy to escape from. When you're in a really low security prison, yes. Like the trusty annex. See, then why would you put anybody in there that had to serve any real amount of time in the trusty annex? Because if someone has to serve basically 25 years, why are they not going to want to escape? That's the thing. You're not supposed to do that. Lifers are not supposed to be put in minimum security because they will try to get out. Yeah, because what else are they going to do? Exactly. What you gonna And they're do? not, they have no threat of facing other charges because they're in there for life so yeah like oh we're gonna extend your sentence <laughs> okay yeah exactly all right they piled into the ford galaxy and the tyson sons had driven to the prison and left only 20 minutes after the entire plan had been set in motion the men had another car a lincoln continental with new mexico plates waiting for them at a hospital parking lot not far from the prison once they had all switched over to the new car they drove straight to Hyder, arizona 137 miles from florence there, they found an abandoned house to spend the night in. They chose the area in hopes that Dorothy would be able to find them another plane and pilot on short notice, thinking it would be easy to land in the large dirt stretches. How is she supposed to just pull up a pilot on short notice like that? So, okay, so there was somehow a pilot married, I think, to one of Dorothy's sisters. But he refused to get involved, obviously. As any person in their right mind would. But and... somehow they found... Two people that had access to planes, one of them was arrested, one of them didn't want to be involved, and now they know a third pilot. I don't know how. I don't think I've ever met a pilot in my life, and they just happen to know a ton of them. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know any pilots, really. I've known a pilot or two. Yeah? My dead cousin was a pilot. He died in a plane crash. No. Okay. He died. I don't remember why. I think a heart attack in his apartment. They didn't find him for like 10 days. Ooh, so he was ripe. It was gruesome. I bet. The next day, Ricky and Ray left to go find a convenience store for food, as they hadn't packed well for a prison escape. On their way back, one of the tires went flat. Once again, showing they didn't pack well, they only had one spare. Gary berated his sons for not thinking to bring extras, not realizing that he never mentioned it either. But honestly, who brings more than one spare tire? Like, come on, Gary. If you're yeah. going to drive across the country, I mean, his plan was basically to loop-de-loop -loop across all four corner states and then go to Mexico. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're a fugitive and being caught out on the road is a problem for you. Most people, one spare tire would One suffice. spare tire should get you to the next place to get a tire, but... The problem with this is that there were five very large men in a Continental, and they were driving on strictly dirt roads. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. And this was back before Continentals had airbags, suspension, yeah. so they were just blowing that shit out. 
bouncing up and down. Randy by himself, I think, was like 235 pounds. It's a big boy. They changed the tire and left the abandoned home. On the radio, they listened to reports of their escape as the guards had climbed through the ceiling and alerted the, alerted of the escape 10 minutes after they'd driven away. The director of correction announced that Gary and Randy were no threat to the public. So the entire state was buying into this trusty Gary narrative. I mean, that narrative was set up by the guy who was supposed to be able to tell them whether or not he was dangerous. Yeah, they were like, no, no, it's trusty Gary. No, he's fine. He's not going to hurt anybody. Now, the other guy, he has a tendency to get a little worked up, get a little bit agitated. You might say he might act a little randy. He really just doesn't like truckers. Around 11.30 p.m., after they'd reached Palm Canyon, the rear tire of the Continental went flat. They attempted to drive on the rim, but had no other option to stop. It's hard to ride on those little 13-inch baby Daytons. Just because it was a Continental doesn't mean it was a low rider. <laughs> they formed a plan. Randy, Gary, Donald, and Ray would hide in the bushes while Ricky waited for the next car to drive by. When he flagged them down, the other men would approach with their guns and steal the car. That's exactly what they did, as not much longer later, the Lyons family drove by. John and Donna Lyons were traveling to Las Vegas, then to Nebraska with their 22-month-old son Christopher, 16-year-old niece Terry Jo Tyson, no relation, and a chihuahua. Don pulled over to help Ricky, who waved him down. As they were talking, the other four men approached both sides of the car, pointing a gun at the woman and baby inside. They forced the lions into the back of their orange Mazda and drove both cars down a dirt service road where no one would see them. Gary ordered the men to move their belongings to the Mazda as the lions family begged to not be hurt. Once the cars were sorted out, Gary went to the front of the Lincoln and began shooting into the hood of the car, destroying it. Ray, Ricky, and Donald were all hopeful that meant he was planning on leaving the family unharmed, just unable to get help until they were long gone. John Lyons continued to be asked to be left with water to hold them over until someone found them. Gary ordered one of the men to get a water jug from the car, and everyone breathed a sigh of relief, knowing the family wasn't going to be hurt. Gary had the family get into the backseat of the Continental, then took a long drink of water when he was handed the jug. He ordered Randy Grinewalt to the side of the car, and the two men opened fire. Donna was hit first, with the shotgun blast ripping through her chest. Their baby, Christopher, was standing on his feet on the floor with his arms around her waist. Donna bent to pick him up to shield him with her body and was shot again in the head and shoulders, killing her. They continued to fire a total of 16 shots into the back seat, 11 of those by Gary. When they believed the family to be dead, Gary told everyone to get into the Mazda. As they did, he walked back over to the Continental and fired two more shots into baby Christopher, who was still alive after being shielded by his mother's body. Holy shit. So I'm assuming he's not trying to cover his tracks he was just killing a kid because he was there because a two-year-old does not make a good witness and so i don't think he was just trying to cover his tracks no i think he just wanted to kill people yeah fuck this guy yeah for sure fuck this guy it's like the number one rule of being a criminal is you don't criminalize the children yeah what was the dog's name by the way they didn't say Okay. As they drove away, John Lyons, still alive, opened the door and stumbled out of the car. He only made it 25 feet before collapsing and dying. Terry Jo Tyson was also alive, shot in the hip and bleeding, but pretending to be dead until she knew the men were gone. She also got out of the car, still holding the lion's dog, which she shielded with her body to keep alive. She made it a thousand feet before she couldn't walk any farther. Knowing she was dying, she took the dog's collar off and put it around her ankle so police would know who she was when her body was found. The dog curled up next to her stomach and died there of exposure to the elements. Fuck this guy. She died, or the dog died, or they both died? Everybody died. They all died. Including the dog. Yeah, I just don't... This dude had no reason to kill all those people. It's not like 
kidnapping and carjacking would have been anything to add to his, like we were talking about. He's already got a rap sheet forever. He's stuck in jail. Uh, it didn't matter if they were witnesses, if he wasn't planning to get caught. Yeah. I mean, even like, what's the point? I mean, Why? I guess to send the police uh, chasing their tail, but I mean, fuck this guy. It would have been I just mean, as easy to literally give them the people the jug of water and drive and away. drive away. But then someone will report the car stolen. Yeah, in a few hours. He hasn't been getting much of a head start this whole time anyways. So I'm I'm thinking that this guy is just a for real, like, psychopath. And he thought this out through and through as to what he needed to do in order to make it to the next spot. Not having people that can identify the car that you're in is probably one of his priority ones. So... Oh, that's dumb. Just get another car. The, the two-year-old is what absolutely stuns me because even a two-year-old wouldn't be able to tell you what car they were in, what what kind of what color. I mean, maybe he thought the two-year-old was gonna die anyways at that point. I mean, yeah, but still, that's not a mercy killing. No, it's I mean, just obviously not. Anyway, I I don't like this guy. Fuck this guy. You know, it's all you think it's all great escape, and now it's just Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. It could have been a, a good escape. Yeah. It could have been a clean escape without hurting anybody, but... Police were now well aware of the escaped inmates and had roadblocks set up all over southern Arizona. Going off the plan Robert Tuzon had told them, they believed the escapees were headed towards Mexico, unaware that they were heading further and further north. A massive manhunt was underway, just in the opposite direction the men were heading. They stopped briefly in Williams, planning on staying with Gary's brother Joe, but Gary decided it was too risky as police were likely watching his house and they needed to continue. And I think right now he wanted to stop and kill him, since he had the opportunity and he was right there. I don't think he actually was going to stay with him. I think they were going to murder him for snitching and then yeah. on their way. Before they left, he had his son spray paint the orange Mazda gray so it was less noticeable. Gray spray bomb over orange paint always looks pro, never suspicious. They knew they needed something easier for the five of them to fit in, and that drove better on the dirt roads they had to take to avoid being spotted, so they headed for Flagstaff. Randy Grinewalt had met another inmate's mother while they were housed next to each other in Coconino County. The woman, Kathy Ermintrout, took a liking to Randy and began writing him and visiting him along with her son. Their relationship grew to something in between romantic and motherly, and Randy knew she would be able to help them get a better vehicle. Randy knew she had a truck of her own, but when they arrived, they learned it wasn't running. Instead, he was able to convince her to buy them one after taking out a loan. How do you talk someone into buying you a truck, Katie? That's a really good question. He was her lover's son, so I'm pretty sure you don't want the answer to that question. <laughs> While Gary, Ray, and Donald hid out, Kathy took Ricky into town to pick out a truck and left Randy in charge of babysitting her two very young grandchildren. That's a questionable decision right there. Yes. Uh, is it a questionable? I would say it's downright bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll roll with that. There was one detective that had interviewed Randy extensively during his murder investigation. They'd gotten to know each other well, and the detective happened to know that Randy was close with Kathy. As soon as he realized that's where they were heading, he attempted to alert anyone in charge of the manhunt. Unfortunately, they were going off of what Robert Tuzone had told them and told the detective they were convinced they were headed towards the border, not Flagstaff. How do you take the word of a snitch over a detective, someone who's actually in your almost same field? Two zone actually means truth teller in uh, wherever the fuck he was from. So they believed him. Ah, and it's also a knockoff of the Native American word, Tucson. Which is where we live. Which is where we live. It means drug addicts live here. Finally, the detective was able to convince them to at least talk to Kathy and see if she'd heard from Randy. When they showed up at her home, no one answered the door, so they left. What they didn't know is Randy was right on the other side of the door, waiting for Kathy to return home from buying them a truck. Probably with a shotgun. Yeah, would you say that was a stroke of luck that they didn't actually answer the door? I don't think they'd answer the door to anybody if you're, like, hiding out in someone else's house, maybe? I don't know. 
Yeah, I wouldn't consider it a stroke of luck because the police got literally inches away from arresting him and stopping this whole thing. But for him, I think it was more of just a coincidence that he happened to be there. I think if Lucky Joe Roses was there, then we could have said, yeah, that was luck. He didn't even know it was police. He thought it was someone from the car dealership coming to ask where, because I think Kathy was at the bank at the time. And so he figured they were coming to figure out where the money was because they knew where she lived. Because I guess that's what you tell people at car dealerships. Once the truck was bought and the Mazda properly covered up in the forest, the group headed towards New Mexico. Surveillance was put on Kathy's house as the men were passing through St. John's. Once Kathy finally admitted she had seen them and the body of the Lyons family was found, Flagstaff became the search headquarters. Police were looking everywhere for now what they knew to be very dangerous men. They didn't get word on their whereabouts again until they were in Roswell New Mexico. Joe Tyson, who was now under surveillance, got a phone call from Gary himself once again asking for a plane. Joe knew that Gary wanted him dead for backing out and snitching on his original skate plan, so he agreed to find him one and meet him in Clovis, New Mexico at a small landing strip. Clovis landing strip is what I'm going to name my titty bar. going to be like Raiders Reef. The Clovis or the strip. Are all the strippers going to have to have a landing strip? Of course. Joe's phone was tapped, and he called police immediately after hanging up with Gary to tell them what he knew. Lucky Joe Roses is a really terrible brother. I could argue with that. I would say he's, 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 that the other one, Gary's a pretty terrible brother. Oh, I mean, they're both terrible, but if you're going to be terrible, you got to be terrible together. Your brothers, hermanos, stick together. Police jumped on the opportunity for a setup and flew Joe out to New Mexico as fast as possible. They got a decoy plane and had it and Joe waiting at the landing strip for Gary and the other men. Joe waited for hours until after the sun had set before police finally realized they weren't going to show. They had no idea the men had shown up hours before them and watched as they set up the decoy plane. They didn't really trust Joe, did they? Or do you think they were there to, you know, jump him? It's really hard to trust someone who double crosses you at every turn and just comes up smelling like roses. Basically. Yeah, that's true. By the time they realized they weren't falling for the plane trap, the men were already on their way to Colorado. By the time they made it to South Fork, Colorado, the $1,500 truck was giving out on them and they knew they needed a van. Kathy took out a loan and then only got them a $1,500 truck? All she could get was like $2,000 loan. They camped out a night in the forest, trying to find a van to steal, but came across nothing. Van hunting in the forest, it's tough. Those wild vans are almost impossible to catch once you find them. They left in the morning to head for Durango, hoping for better luck. They could steal a Durango in Durango. Seats eight, and it's four by four. While they sat in a line of traffic at construction, just a few cars ahead of them was exactly the kind of van they wanted. What kind of van were they looking for? Like, four-wheel drive Mr. T van? They wanted something they could get the men in the back of, and they could all camp in, basically, because they were sleeping in the forest on two sleeping bags at this point. They do make four-wheel drive vans. And I'm thinking that might be what they were digging. It belonged to Marjane and James Judge, newlyweds spending their honeymoon camping and fishing in Colorado. Gary and Randy got out of the truck and casually walked to each side of the van, pointing their guns at the couple and getting them into the back of the van. Gary drove while the other men followed in the truck to another deserted service road. He had his sons wait a few miles ahead while he and Randy drove the van and the judges deeper into the forest. They had them step out and walk in opposite directions of each other, Gary with Marjean and Randy with James. Once they felt they were far enough, each man pointed the gun to the back of their victims' heads and fired, killing them instantly. There's no turning back at this point, right? Like, these guys made a decision they were not going to go to back, go back to prison. So you'd think it's going to be, like, suicide by cop time, like, if it comes down to it? I don't think they wanted to commit suicide by cop. I think they were fully 100% convinced they were going to get away. Either way, there was literally no reason for them to kill 
all these people instead of just taking their cars. They're just killing to kill and maybe to put a little scare in the world. Well, I heard something that like there's a uh, like six quote unquote successful criminals don't live by half measures. From there, the men drove the two vehicles to Cortez, where they dropped the truck off at a mechanic. Gary's idea was that the truck could be left there for weeks, unlike leaving it somewhere where someone would report it as an abandoned vehicle and link it to them. They spent the night near Telluride before waking the morning of the 10th to learn Gary had decided they were going back to Arizona to try and cross the Mexican border. They spent the day driving all the way back to Casa Grande, then on the 11th, most likely visiting family in town. Their van was spotted multiple times by an officer, but police believed they were still looking for the Mazda and were completely unaware of Marjean and James's deaths. Late that night, someone attempted to break into an armory in town. Knowing that Gary had done it before, and knowing that he liked to always come back to Casa Grande, police set up roadblocks on every back road that went to Mexico. Around 2 a.m. on the 12th, after they discovered it was a false alarm at the armory, they called off the roadblocks. A couple of officers posted on the same road a few miles away from each other, somehow missed the message and continued to stop anyone driving by. As they sat and drank their coffee, they could see headlights approaching, so they stood to talk to whoever was in what looked like a van. As it approached, it slowed to almost a stop, then the driver, Donald Tyson, floored it as Gary and Randy fired shots at the officers through the windows. The shocked officers jumped into their patrol cars and gave chase, radioing to the roadblock ahead that the van had shot at them. The men at the second roadblock got their rifles ready and stood on opposite sides of the road, waiting for the van to approach. As soon as it was in range, they unloaded clip after clip into the driver and passengers. Just as the van passed them, it suddenly slowed, like the driver had taken their foot off the gas, continued to roll off the road into a drainage ditch, hit a rock, and jerked sideways before finally crashing into a tree and spinning around. The men inside all used the dust kicked up as cover as they ran from a van into the desert. As everything cleared, the officers chasing the van spotted Randy Grinewalt running and fired at him, sending him to the ground. Everyone held their position until they had backup, knowing that the men in that van were armed and extremely dangerous. Once the helicopter arrived and shined a spotlight on Randy, they realized Ray and Ricky Tyson were laying next to him on the ground. None of the men were dead or injured, just tired of running and ready to give up. Gary was nowhere to be found. Now these guys were like complicit in the murder of two families, and I kind of hoped they were dead. At least they're alive to hopefully, hopefully roll over on old trusty Gary. Even Randy, like none of them were hurt. They just like just dropped to the ground. They were like, fuck this. Yeah, basically, as soon as they fired at him as they were running, they just <laughs> went down. The bullet whizzing by your head will have that effect. Yeah, that seems to be the, the effect they were looking for. <laughs> if you're smart, you're like, oh, I'm going to lay down now. Looking into the van, they realized that Donald Tyson was still barely alive, but not going to make it much longer, as he'd been shot through the head. Ray and Ricky, who were sitting next to him in the van, were covered in his blood and brain matter. After 13 days on the run, four of the five men had been captured. Gary Tyson wasn't found until August 22nd, when a man that ran a fertilizer plant noticed an increasingly bad smell. There's only one thing that smells bad enough in this entire world for a fertilizer farmer to notice it. As he walked around his property, he stumbled on Gary's body, bloated and decaying under a bush. There were holes dug into the ground, and the heels of his boots were worn down from him writhing, likely for hours, while he died of dehydration after spending 11 days in the desert. Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. Did he have any gunshot wounds? Like, did he get hit in that? No, he didn't get shot in the van, and then when they crashed, everyone else basically went straight off from the van. He actually looped around and went opposite direction that the cops were going to be looking for them. He, he was, was smart. I mean, you give him that, I guess. And that's probably because he felt absolutely no fear of anything, since they really don't experience any fear or anxiety, so he was able to not act on fear. He was straight just thinking about what decision to 
save his life, basically. Randy Grinewalt, Ricky Tyson, and Ray Tyson were all sentenced to death for felony murder. Ricky and Ray attempted to appeal their sentence and made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court, who affirmed. Their sentences were then commuted to four life sentences due to them both being under 20 when the crimes were committed. Ironically, they are serving their time at Arizona State Prison. The bodies of Marjean and James Judge were found November 15, 1978, after Randy finally agreed to cooperate. About how long were they in the woods before they were found? Like a couple days over three months. He was put to death on January 23, 1997 by lethal injection. On August 23, 1979... Dorothy Tyson, Joe Tyson, and Kathy Ermintrout were convicted of conspiracy. After Joe served three of his four-year sentence, he was arrested again for smuggling illegal aliens across the Mexican border. I'm just going to say that uh, Lucky Joe Roses is one of the worst criminals that we've ever had in our podcast. Like he, stupidity wise? Yeah, like he's a terrible criminal. He doesn't get away with anything. Yeah, he should have just uh, learned from uh, Narcos and stuck with tractors. <laughs> Should have stuck with the tractors. So, so is that it for our main man here, Gary Tyson? Yep, that's it. I liked this episode. I thought it had pretty much everything. I mean, there's a little bit of everything. There's a lot more in the book too that I didn't cover, so I recommend reading it. The story's crazy. I mean, this guy obviously had some thought for what he was doing. Crazy psychopath, just killed people. And I think that's gonna do it for this week, guys. Uh, when, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us a message at Four Corners at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R Corners Crimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Four Corners Crimecast on Instagram at Four Corners Crimecast and on Twitter at Four Corners Crime with the number four. And give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, follow us on Spotify and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list to send us ideas for an episode or just to get your free sticker from our merch store. Uh, if you want that free sticker, just put it in your cart, enter the code bingo bango at checkout. And we will ship your sticker out to you 100% free. So just remember this week, uh, just because someone says that you can trust them does not make them trusty. Don't commit crimes in your own city. Don't commit crime. What? No, there's a 10-mile rule. If you're going to commit crime, commit it not in your own city. How is that, Roar? Be smart with your crime. Exactly. Okay. Just listen to the 10 crack commandments. That'll tell you everything you need to know if about you... drug dealing. If you escape prison, you are going to die. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. See ya. Headshot. Adios, motherfuckers. Who deleted my comment? What, what comment? comment? I had a comment in there that said uh, they got it. Uh, <laughs> they got it wrong.